0: Hi, everyone. Um, This morning's scripture comes from John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of the Tiberians. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two thousand denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and five—sorry, uh, two fish but what are we to do for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the, barely, the five barley loaves uh, left by those who had eaten. Uh, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we... Uh... Reflect on the song that was just sung, Lord, and confess that often uh, our hearts don't run after you. They actually run after all sorts of other things that are not you. So, Father, we pray that you would knit our hearts to you this morning, that you would open our eyes to see your greatness, that you would open our eyes to see the value of you above all the other things that our hearts tend to run after, Father. Pray that your Spirit would do this, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of of our hearts together be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. If you've been with us uh, the past couple weeks, you'll know that during the Lenten season, uh, we've been uh, looking at Jesus, hopefully looking at Jesus with, with fresh eyes. And the lens that we're trying to look at Jesus with fresh eyes is through the lens of his miracles or his miraculous deeds, that he did while he was here on earth. Now, I want to do an exercise before we get started. I want you to think about uh, the dating process, okay? For some of you, the dating process is a long time in the rearview mirror. Some of you, the dating process you are in right now, you're experiencing that right now. For Some of you uh, are looking forward to the dating process at, at some point in your life. But uh, we all know that the dating is a process. It's not something that often happens uh, overnight. It's a process that unfolds after uh, a certain amount of time. And it's a process in which you begin to reveal things about yourself over periods of time. Okay? That first date you have with this potential person you usually don't reveal everything about yourself at that first date. It would be like going out to dinner for the first time, meeting someone for the first time and saying to them, you know, I just have to tell you at the front end that I have a problem with foot odor. You know, we just don't say those things. Those are processes that happen over time where we reveal little things about ourselves uh, to this potential person. Well, in some ways, that is what Jesus's miracles did in that first century. And this is what I mean by that. Often when we look at Jesus, we, we read the story as, as someone who knows the end. We've read through the story, so we kind of know all the things that are going to happen. We know who Jesus is because of the scriptures. But for those in the first century, for those that were just interacting for Jesus uh, for the first time, they didn't know who this person was. They'd heard maybe that that there were some interesting things that happened around Jesus's birth. But for 30 years, he was off the radar. He was off the grid. And then all of a sudden, he emerges and begins to do these miraculous things. Uh, works in the first century world, and the people are left wondering who this person is. So every one of Jesus's miracles begins to reveal certain things about him. They begin to pull back the curtain a little bit. They begin to reveal who this person Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. But these miracles are also things that have uh, more meaning than often meets the eye. I've often uh, used them, when we talk about Jesus' miracles, I've often used the illustration of an onion. And you know how when you peel an onion, you begin to to pull back layers uh, of the onion until you get to the very center. My first job ever was working uh, at a deli. And one of the big jobs working at the deli is you had to... Cut onions that you would use to make subs and things like that. Well, I was the king of cutting onions at my first job. And here's why. Everyone else, when they cut the onions, would bawl uncontrollably because of the the, the smell and the effect of the onions. But I was, I was raised to this mythic status because I could peel onions without crying. It was really impressive. And I didn't know why that was. Maybe that was just some super ability that God gave me at birth. But then one day, I chose not to wear my contact lenses to work. And that day, I became a mere human around everyone else. With every level that I pulled back from that onion, my body reacted to a greater and greater, more extensive degree. Well, in some ways, that's what what Jesus' miracles do. As we pull back the layers, we see that they do have some meaning at face value. But as you pull back the layers, you see that they have deeper meaning that affects us at several levels as we begin to think and reflect on them. And this miracle that we read this morning may be the most important miracle. It's the one miracle that every gospel writer uh, Mentions. It's the only one that they all mention. So maybe in some ways this one may be the most important. But this miracle is like other miracles. It's like that onion because there is a, a face value meaning to this miracle. But then there is a tremendous background that leads us to see that there is a deeper meaning to this miracle as well. And then finally we see that many people had very different responses to the deeper meaning of this miracle. But the first thing we see is that this miracle had face value. If you were with us uh, last week, you'll know that we we looked at the story where Jesus turned uh, the water into wine miraculously. He turned water into a great abundance of wine. Well, later in that chapter, Jesus goes to the temple and he ends up cleansing the temple. This really interesting story of what Jesus does when he gets to the temple. John tells us in in the third chapter that then Jesus goes from there and interacts with some Pharisees of the day. He interacts with one in particular named Nicodemus, who he says that you actually have to be born again, which puzzles Nicodemus for a long time. After his encounter with Nicodemus, he goes on to to interact with John the Baptist for a little while. And and then he goes on to Samaria and has this powerful encounter with a a woman at the well in Samaria. After that, in John chapter 4, you read that he goes and interacts with an official and uh, and miraculously heals the son of an official. And after that, he goes into the temple and and heals a man uh, who had been lame from birth. So at this point, we realize once we get to John chapter 6 that that Jesus' fame is starting to spread. People are starting to to hear about him and and they're starting to gather around him in great crowds just to to catch a glimpse of, of what Jesus may teach or what miraculous thing that he might do. In fact, people are running after him just to find out what Jesus is going to do next. And in our story, the crowds became so great that it put Jesus's followers in a very unique position. The story opens up with Jesus being on a mountain and crowds had gathered from all over to see uh, what Jesus was going to do next and to hear the things that he was going to teach. Now, John is careful to tell us that it's during the Passover feast. So many people, many out-of-town guests would have come into the region of Galilee just just to celebrate this Passover feast. And while they are there to see this person named Jesus that they'd heard so much about. And at one point, Jesus looks up. And he sees this massive crowd and he has sympathy and he has compassion for this crowd. And he says to his followers, where can we go and buy bread for all of these people? Immediately, his disciples laugh at Jesus, telling him that it would take close to eight months of salary or eight months of wages in order for them to be able to buy enough food for all these people, because there were a lot of people there to hear Jesus, most commentators think that uh, the, the the scripture writers say it was about five thousand people. but often whenever you see numbers like that in scriptures they they betray the reality in some ways, because often when they did counts like this, they would only count the men. so in this event, it is probably more likely that there were not just five thousand people there. to to hear Jesus, there was probably close to 20,000 people that had gathered together that day just to hear Jesus. Men, women, children, families, single people, people from all sorts of walks of life had gathered to see and to hear Jesus. So it comes to Jesus' attention that the only thing that they have in their possession are, are five barley loaves and two fish. The fish were probably like little sardines that were more used to crush and to to flavor bread. And the five loaves that were given them were barley bread. They were loaves that uh, were only used by the poorest of poor people in the first century. This was ludicrously, ludicrously uh, um, inadequate in order to feed all of these people. But of course, we know the story from what we've just read. Jesus takes these loaves and he takes these fish and he multiplies them so much so that everyone that was there, probably 20,000 people, walked away that day full. But just as we saw last week, Jesus wasn't there just to fill them up, but he brought abundance. There was leftovers there was, there was food that was, that was left for many people to carry and take because, of, because Jesus came to bring abundance, just like we saw last week. Many people think that this was probably Jesus' biggest miracle because this miracle touched probably 20,000 people in just one minute. So the question we ask is, what does this miracle revealed to us about Jesus? What would the crowd have taken away from when they experienced this miracle? Well, first of all, they would have realized that this man, Jesus, is no ordinary man. He's different than any other man we have ever encountered. They would have walked away being reminded that his miraculous power is able to provide for them materially. They walked away realizing that Jesus is able to bring great abundance literally out of nothing. But there's more to this miracle than just what we see face value. Because there's a very rich background that helps us to see that something else is going on here too. What's interesting is if you read the entire New Testament, you'll see that this idea of bread comes up time and time again all throughout the Old Testament. The first time you see it is in Exodus chapter 12, when, uh, when God's people, the Israelites, were about to be released from their physical enslavement to the Egyptians. On the night, on the eve before they were about to be released, God instituted a celebration he instituted a meal for his people called the Passover meal. And at that Passover meal, they were to take bread. And that bread was to be a symbol. It was to be a symbol that they were about to be delivered from their physical bondage to the Egyptians. But it wasn't just a meal that they were to take just one time. It was to be a meal that they would celebrate for centuries. Generation after generation would practice this Passover meal. Grandfathers would tell their kids about the story of how God released them from their Egyptian enslavement. And this bread was to be a physical reminder that God delivered them from their enslavement to the Egyptians. Now, it's no accident that John makes mention at the very beginning of this story. That when Jesus multiplied these loaves, it was during the Passover feast. The point being that just as in history, God freed them from bondage to a physical and bondage to enslavement. God was now offering a different deliverance. And this deliverance would be from from, from the bondage of sin and death. So this adds a different meaning. But just after, in the Old Testament, just after God's people are freed from their enslavement, they move out into the desert. And Exodus chapter 16 tells us that, that they did the very thing that you and I do when we get hungry. They complained. They complain to God, did you just bring us out of Egypt in order to kill us by starvation in the desert? So they cry out to God in order to, to, to deliver them from their hunger, to deliver them from their starvation. And what happens? God miraculously provides for them by raining down bread from heaven every single day to provide for their material needs. Only God Could have done this for them. You see, what John, the gospel writer, is doing is he's helping us to see that this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is another story about bread coming from heaven. Because only God could multiply bread in order to feed 20,000 people. And Jesus is God Himself who's come down in the flesh. Jesus even alludes to this later in John chapter 6, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see what Jesus is doing is he's recreating all these Old Testament images associated with bread. But he's not just recreating them. He's saying, I have come to fulfill them. I have come to be the realization of all these old images that you've known throughout your history. I have come to fulfill them. But these bread images aren't just past images, but you can also look forward in the scriptures and see them as well. Jesus, in the last week of his life, institutes another meal. That replaces that old Passover feast. Another meal that involves bread. And that bread is to symbolize his body that was about to be broken on the cross on our behalf. It's a meal, a symbol that we even celebrate as we come to worship uh, on a regular basis. The fact that his body was broken on our behalf so that we could be freed from the bondage of sin and death. But there's one other bread image, and that is at the very end. At the very end of the scriptures, when it talks about this ultimate feast that we will experience in heaven, where we will feast not just on bread, but all the wonderful offerings that heaven has for us in that ultimate wedding feast. So this image of bread is a powerful one. It's one that you can trace all throughout the scriptures but this background points to an even deeper meaning to this miracle that Jesus performs in John chapter six. And the key to that meaning is found in Jesus's words that he later speaks when he's debriefing this miracle with his followers. He says this, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus even says a couple of verses earlier, he says this, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to um, a podcast, a, a This American Life podcast, which is one of my favorite things to listen to each week. And uh, they told a a really kind of funny story uh, in that podcast uh, about a young newlywed couple named Mike and Sarah. And uh, in this story, Mike and Sarah had just been married, and uh, they had um, uh, bought a house. They put all their savings uh, aside just so they could buy this house and enjoy it as, as a newlywed couple. But because they put so much of their money into buying this house, they had the house, but they didn't have enough money to furnish the house. So it says that when they moved into this house, all they had were those those plastic little lawn chairs that everybody used that they would sit and eat little meals together uh, on these plastic chairs. So what they had to do is they had to be really creative in terms of how they bought their furniture. So they'd try to go to yard sales and try to find everything they could to find the cheapest things that they could find just so they could furnish their house. Well, one of the things that one of the stories they told is that right around then they had discovered this thing called eBay. Okay, I don't know how many of you have ever bought anything on eBay, but this was 1998. And in 1998, the Internet was still all dial up and eBay was a brand new thing. And uh, they tell the story that they got on eBay and they started searching for deals for furniture that they could find. And as they were searching, they found uh, they found the exact dining room table that their hearts had desired for their entire lives. It was made of walnut. It had chairs all over. And they began to have visions of of all of their friends coming and dining around this table. They had visions of their kids and their grandkids sitting around at this walnut dinner table. And they believed that if they just got this dinner table, then they would have arrived at adulthood. That life would be complete if they got this table. So they began to bid on eBay in order to get this table. And they were thrilled to find out that they got this table for only $20. They were excited. They, were, they couldn't wait for it to arrive. And then just three or four days later, a box arrives at their house. But the box is only about half the size of a toaster oven. So they, they slit the box open, they pull it out, and what they pull out of the box is their kitchen table, perfect, just as they had dreamed it would be, except one thing. It was mini. It was made for a dollhouse. They said they didn't know whether they should laugh or cry because they had this, but ultimately what they walked away with was a great sense of unsatisfaction about their kitchen table. Well, friends, day in and day out, you and I go on a search in all sorts of different ways in order to find life. We search for the bread of success and popularity. We sample the bread of relationships, hoping to find life. We sample the bread of status and wealth. And we think that if we just get those things, we will ultimately be satisfied. We will ultimately Find life. But in the end, those things will only leave us satisf- unsatisfied. They will only leave us hungry again. Someone once wrote this they said, living in a consumer society fueled by sophisticated advertising and relative affluence, we've been given the means and the motivation to pursue countless forms of bread. If I simply possess this car or that cologne, my self-image will be healed and my sense of safetyness and well-being renewed. Once we possess these things, of course, their seductive appeal evaporates and we move on to new targets of gratification. This is the cultural air in which we breathe. And because of that, it makes Jesus's words here just that much more poignant. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You see, Jesus bids everyone, both in that first century world and today, he be, bids everyone to come to him and eat, to eat in a way in which we will no longer hunger. He bids us to come drink in such a way that we will no longer thirst. And ultimately, this is what believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. It it means coming to Jesus and feeding on him as the only source of life. Because only in him can our souls find the rest that they so desire. You see, that internal hunger and thirst that drives so much of our behavior... And so much of our affections can only be satisfied in him, the bread of life. It's why Augustine so famously said that our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. This is the deeper meaning that Jesus is trying to communicate in this miracle of multiplying all this bread. But as is so often with all of Jesus's miracles, there, is a, there are many different responses that Jesus' followers have. You see, the crowd's response in the very end of this story is actually quite remarkable. Because it says in the end that the people were so amazed, the crowd was so amazed at this miracle, that it says they wanted to take Jesus and make him their king in that very moment. You see, this was a a largely poor and a largely agrarian society. So to see someone miraculously provide food in such a unique way would have been incredibly amazing. Because many of the people in that crowd each day wondered where their next meal would come from. They wondered if they would have food on the table for their children even that evening. And if the weather turned just one way or another, it could destroy crops and destroy any prospect for them having food. Yet they've found a source in Jesus. They've found a source who can, who can provide food, but not just provide it, but could provide it in incredible abundance with little or no effort. So this man must be our king. We must make him our king. One commentator said this in order to help us understand what's going on here. He said this, On one level, it was the right thing for Jesus to feed the people. But on another level, it would be as if the Sony Corporation had pulled up to a local high school and began distributing an endless supply of stereo equipment and electronics. The men in suits would be awarded messianic status. And in a short length of time, The scene might even become ugly. The abundance of the miracle overwhelmed everyone in this story. But curiously, it says at the very end of the narrative that just as they were about to go and make Jesus their king, it says that Jesus withdrew. He distanced himself from the crowd. He disappeared. He disappeared because it wasn't his time yet. And the king that they were looking for wasn't really the king that he had come to be. He disappeared because he realized, and, and, and even though they didn't, that their greatest issue wasn't their physical hunger. Their greatest issue was something deeper. You see, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they weren't there ultimately to follow him. He knew that they were there ultimately just to get A free lunch. And the reality is that often you and I can make the same mistakes when it comes to Jesus. Often we can follow Jesus only for the fringe benefits that he provides. We can follow him only for the blessings that he offers. But in the end, that isn't really following Jesus in the way that he desires. William Barclay, who was a famous commentator, said this. He said, The attitude of that mob disgusts us. But are we really all that different? We want comfort in sorrow, when we want strength in difficulty, when we want peace in turmoil, when we want help in the face of depression. There there is no one so wonderful as Jesus, and we walk with him, and we talk with him, and we open our hearts to him. But when he comes to us with some stern demand for sacrifice, with some challenge to effort, with the offer of some cross, we will have nothing to do with him. When we examine our hearts, it may be that we find that we too love Jesus For what, for only for what we can get out of him. See, you and I are, are not all that unlike that crowd. And we can be tenacious about our desires when it comes to Jesus. And this crowd was Tenacious. They were so tenacious that even though Jesus withdrew, even though he walked away, they pursued after him. They kept following him everywhere he went, and ultimately they end up finding him again. So then Jesus begins to teach them. He begins to unpack this miracle. He begins to say to them that their greatest issue is not their physical hunger. Their greatest issue is they need him spiritually. Their greatest issue is they are spiritually bankrupt and in great need of what Jesus comes to offer. Because what he tells them is that their greatest issue is they have a spiritual hunger that really only Jesus can satisfy. He tells them that they have to feed on his flesh and they have to drink his blood. This this kind of powerful image that illustrates his perfect sacrifice on their behalf would be their only means for which their spiritual hunger could be satisfied. So as Jesus begins to explain to them all these things, they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. They say to Jesus, Where's the free food? What you're saying now, these are hard sayings. We don't want to hear this. We just want the free food. And the scriptures tell us that one by one, they all began to walk away from Jesus. One by one, they all began to walk away. So much so that that before there was 20,000 people. And now at the very end of John chapter 6, the only people that are left are Jesus's 12 followers. It says this at the very end. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus looks at the 12 and he says this, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe that day, only one person really got what Jesus was trying to say, and that was Peter. Because Peter understood, aided by the Holy Spirit, he understood that ultimately Jesus was the only source of life. And that he was the bread of of heaven. So the question is, what about you? Are you spending your life chasing after bread that ultimately will never satisfy you? Are you simply coming to Jesus so that he can aid you in pursuing other substitutes? Substitutes that will only ever leave you empty. Or have you recognized like Peter that he is the only source of life? Have you recognized, like Peter, that there really is no other place to go? Then if so, eat his bread, drink his cup, and you will ultimately be satisfied.